Hi, everyone, and welcome to State of the Revolution, the Michigan Progressive Podcast. I'm Leanne O'Shea. Welcome, Peter Werby. It's been a long time since we've seen each other, but it's good to see you again. And I think a lot of people may not know your background and all of that leading up to this book that we're going to talk about. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, it depends on where in the alternative media sphere you fall, what you know about me. Maybe the largest group would be that of people that listened to me for so many years on commercial radio. I guess that's not alternative media, isn't it? My opinions on there were pretty alternative. But I was a talk show host of Night Call. It was the longest running phone-in talk show in American radio history. It went from 1970 to to 20. Uh, what would it be? 2016. Oh, yeah, that's right. They right before the 2016 election, they said bye bye to me. Um, <laughs> also, I've uh, worked for years since the 1960s uh, with the Fifth Estate newspaper, now the Fifth Estate magazine. And uh, that was one of the early underground papers, uh, along with 500 other papers that existed by 1970, with a weekly circulation of 4 million. And I would actually argue that uh, the print underground press in 1970 had an impact on the politics and culture of this country way more than the internet has today. But, you know, people are probably saying, what does this old guy know? You know, he's, he's back in the 20th century. But I could make the argument if anybody wants to argue. That's a very interesting point. Your book is called Summer on Fire. Actually, let me just grab it over here. It's called Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel. It's set in Detroit seven weeks in the summer of 1967. So it also obviously includes the Detroit Rebellion, but lots of other uh, aspects of, of life at that time. Actually, you know, I really, reading this was actually kind of like a trip down memory lane for me because I've heard a lot of these stories from my mom and from you and from other people that were around at that time. And it's really cool to see these all put together and in sequence. And that was really cool. Well, good. Um, and your your mother, uh, Tanya, was part of the story as well. Yeah. Yeah. She was. Uh, she told me about how she was living down near Wayne State when the rebellion uh, happened, and she told like a lot of the stories in the book, like about the uh, people helping old ladies loot the grocery <laughs> store, and yeah. uh, you know, picking up dark couches and putting them in the back of cars and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, all of that stuff was really, really great. I, I really enjoyed the book. It was really cool. And it's available from uh, Peter Werbe, W-E-R-B-E dot org. Shameless plug. <laughs> no, was, hey, great. Go for it. Let me ask how, I mean, obviously it's somewhat autobiographical. Is it pretty autobiographical or? Well, you know, that's a hard one. There's, uh, because it is and it isn't. I, my stock answer is that really it's the autobiography of a generation people that were then in their late teens and in their 20s in 1967. So most of the incidents, although not all of them, that are in Summer on Fire had some basis in reality. They didn't all happen to me. Uh, Most of them were uh, expanded for to make an interesting book of fiction. I'll just give you one example. Uh, In fact, a, a friend of mine was very disappointed because at one point, the couple uh, Paul and Michelle, and someone mm-hmm. said, if you didn't want it to think it was an autobiography of you and your wife, Marilyn, why did you call it Paul and Michelle? Why didn't you call it like Art and uh, Louise or something right. like that? And right. I said, yeah, good point. But um, 
Paul and Michelle get on a motorcycle. Paul has just taken LSD, dropped acid, as we used to say, and they're off to the Grandy Ballroom uh, with Paul starting to peak on this LSD as they drive down West Grand Boulevard. And so this friend said, wow, that must've been really wild. I said, well, that didn't happen. And they, they were so disappointed and I hope I'm not <laughs> disappointing people uh, now, but the option in writing fiction would have been to say, uh, Paul and Michelle got in a car, um, drove to the Grandy and got out of the car. Well, the, the description of Paul getting high and the road beginning to appear to, to, you know, to wind and hills appearing and cars looking cartoon-like, that would all be lost. Now, did I ever uh, take LSD and get on a motorcycle? Yes, but not right at that time. But it was key to the characters going to the Grandy Ballroom because the culture of that period for white people was important. And the reason I emphasize race there is, since you've read Summer on Fire, is at one point there's a juxtaposition between almost exclusively white people dancing and partying at the Grandy Ballroom and Black people a mile and a half away at 12th Street in Claremont, the epicenter of where the rebellion begins and how the two are similar and different and the consequences of each night. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I thought that was really powerful, the way that you addressed both of those perspectives. And I, I thought effectively, I was really, uh, really enjoyed the book. Let me just insert something here, which I thought at one point, yeah, I almost wrote it on on autopilot. It just all sort of spilled out. And one of the bookstores that's been so incredibly supportive and sold so many books is Janet Jones's Source Booksellers on Cass Avenue near mm-hmm. West Canfield. And at one point I said to her, Janet, has there been any Black fiction writers that have located the 1967 Detroit Rebellion in their work? And she said, hmm, no. So all the books, if you think where they're not all, mine's not all about the rebellion, but if you think of Middlesex, uh, Grand River and Joy, Motor City Burning, there's a fourth one who I can't think of right now. It all is how the rebellion, the Black Rebellion of 1967 affected white people. And it has this white gaze, G-A-Z-E, to it, yeah. which is okay. I mean, you know, I'm a white guy and I had spe- you know, specific ways, uh, a specific lens through which to view all of this. And the point, I mean, at least I hope I'm not hammering people over the, uh, the head with it, but if it's read carefully other than just, you know, a little nostalgia trip, that all comes true or all, all appears to be the case. Right. It felt that there were certain parts of it that felt like you were telling the story of this couple and then you were also telling the story of what was going on in the city. So you're like you would go from what the Fifth Estate folks were doing, going on reporting on stuff like that. And then you would switch to this is what the cops were doing with a bunch of black people. Yeah. You know, and I'm just curious. I believe I recognize some of the names from reading this stuff before. You Did you use the actual names of cops or something like that? I did of the the cops at the Algiers Motel that summarily executed three children, teenagers, excuse me, teens right. that are listening if I call you children. But uh, when right. you're 18, 19 years old, uh, let me put it another way, teenagers, they summarily executed these teenagers who uh, were at the Algiers Motel, pretty close to where Marilyn and I lived 
during the events of July 1967. And yeah, so the only real names in it are the cops, a judge, John Sinclair, who uh, was such a power and still is such a powerful cultural and political force in the city. Um, mm -hmm. I used uh, his name. And I w at first I had his name as Sinclair Johnson. And then I, I don't know why. I mean, just because uh, maybe to some extent to honor John and he was fine with it. And he has a quote on the front cover of the mm -hmm. book. So he was yeah. fine with it. But everybody else, people say, oh, that was so-and-so, that was so-and-so. And if people say, oh, Paul and Michelle are really you, Peter, and Marilyn, I go, okay, I don't care. Yeah. And one of the things is I started, uh, I would tell people, they'd say, oh, man, that was so cool, you know, that you did this or Marilyn did that. And I said, we didn't do that, <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. uh, um, and they were they were disappointed. So mm -hmm. I've started when someone says to me, did you or did Marilyn do this or did Harvey mm -hmm. of Shinsky, the founder of the mm -hmm. Fifth Estate, who has a similar character in there? Did they do that? I said, you're like someone who goes to a magic show, the magician does a fabulous mm -hmm. trick. And then you say, show me how you did it. Right. Uh, <laughs> So it, it's, it's all true. It's all lies. But that's, that's not important. It's not important whether I rode to the Grandy Ballroom high on acid. What is important is the parts about the war and opposition to it, about the culture of the period, uh, about the, the role that Michigan State University played in creating the war in Vietnam. Uh, yeah. I want to get in there the, the theories of Wilhelm Reich, a radical psychologist. Yeah. Uh, and a couple of people have said to me, there's too much expository writing in there because you're supposed to show, not tell. In other words, everything that was expository, they would have coming from the mouth of characters. Well, yeah. it just wouldn't work. And yeah. so some people said, well, you know, well, is it a novel or is it history? I said, you know, I hate to use a current cliche, but it is what it is. Sure. Most people uh, from the feedback I've gotten have liked it. Yeah. Whereas in Goodreads, which mm -hmm. uh, reviews books, there yeah. most of them were fives and fours. There were a couple people put one. I mean, I, I keep thinking, this is all about Detroit, summer 1967. Mm -hmm. Maybe if someone handed you and me a, a book about Milwaukee in sure. 1968, we'd go, eh. Yeah, yeah, that could be. That could be. I think you've done a good job of giving people a window into the ethos of the time from your perspective and bringing in a lot of the context of what was happening and, and why it was happening. And I thought that was really great. Well, let but me... Let me just say one thing in terms of expository writing. At one point, Paul begins to explain the roots of the Detroit Rebellion. And most people, I'm sure, would say, well, Black people were segregated. They were poor. There was massive police brutality. I mean, the cops are almost nice compared to, I'm, I'm not give them a pass for what they right. still do. They still do lots of wrong stuff. But Paul begins to explain the economic and social roots uh, having to do with the destruction of the area of Detroit called Black Bottom that mm -hmm. directly creates the social uh, context for an, an explosion. And I don't know. I mean, would a novelist have me leave that out or in three sentences? That's extraordinarily important. And most right. people, you know, don't think about it. Let me, let me just say one thing about the cops, too. Mm -hmm. Between 1967, and this must include the riot dead as well, but between 67 and 72, the Detroit cops shot and killed 
over a hundred unarmed black men. I mean, that's, and if you can extrapolate deaths to, you know, wounded, uh, we're talking about hundreds of black people that were shot by the Detroit cops. Now we're outraged and well, we should be when the mis and malfeasance in office that police still perpetrate on poor people and people of color and particularly poor people of color. So oddly enough, we're making progress, but not enough and not fast enough. So let me let me ask you about that. That's actually one of the other things that I found interesting in, in reading the book was that a lot of the characters and a lot of the arguments are there are people that I could identify from activism today going, OK, that, there's that guy that behaves this way. And there's this argument and this argument. And here, you know, how do you think the left has evolved since 67 or, you know, since that era? Do you think there has been an evolution or are we, um, though we're making progress, we're often still kind of stuck because we haven't had the larger conversations in the culture more broadly, like we're starting to do now, I think. But what, what do you think about that? You know, I, I've been noticing on interviews uh, lately, people that are being interviewed, they say, that's a great question, which means they're trying to, they're <laughs> trying to regroup to, uh, uh, to give an answer. But I do have an answer uh, for that. It depends on how you look at it. There were two sections of the left historically going back into the 19th century, the revolutionary left and the, the reformist left. And the reformist left, uh, which uh, were the social Democrats and who wanted to uh, get rid of the, the worst aspects of capitalism and industrial production, you know, the, the eight-hour day, the weekend, the minimum wage, all that safety. So sure. that, that's all social democratic reforms and ones that are well needed and still needed, aren't anywhere. Sure. That has never been completed. Better than it was in 1880 or, you know, say even way back, 1840, which uh, working industrially was a death sentence. Yeah. The revolutionary left had the vision of completely uh, overthrowing capitalism, uh, installing workers' government. And there were different aspects of that. Anarchists want to do away with government completely, run things communally and cooperatively. The Marxists wanted to have for a while, they said, uh, a dictatorship of the proletariat so they'd have a workers' government. Same with the socialists, but uh, not as, um, oh, what, uh, you know, the revolutionary socialists. Well, actually, most of the revolutionary socialists were, uh, were Marxists. Well, the call for revolution, I mean, well, let me put it this way. The revolutionary epoch of 1848, really, to 1939, with the defeat of the Spanish Civil War and Revolution, marked the end of the legitimacy of a revolutionary thrust. Partly it was defeated by capital, partly it was defeated by the treachery of the Stalinists uh, in places like Spain, but lots of other places as well. I mean, the establishment, instead of a workers' government, a bureaucratic dictatorship, not of the proletariat, but of the, of the party. And the vision attached to that, nobody sensibly wanted, except aspiring police state bureaucrats. Yeah. So the idea now, if I told you I was a, a revolutionary anarchist, which is easy to say, you know, I mean, because there's no, there's nothing that I'm required to do or any threat to me. I could say, hey, I'm a revolutionary anarchist or, you know, I'm a centrist Democrat. And it's just, you know, how do you function in the world? But now, if, if the people listening, if I said I'm a revolutionary anarchist, first off, they probably think if, if they didn't think I was just posturing, you know, boy, aren't I cool? Right. 
you know, right. um, you know, sitting in my house in the suburbs. It's not like it was, you know, a hundred years ago or, right. or, or so, or, or it, it'd say, you know, they'd start singing, imagine to me, you know, right. I'm, I'm a dreamer that right. uh, what we've got to do, we've got to deal. Sure. Sure. You know, uh, everybody's an anarchist these days, but what we really want is how do we get, you know, they used to say the boot off of people's throat, or now I guess the knee off of people's throat, but economically and, you know, socially and, and you know, everything that still needs fixing in this country. Not sure where your question began. Oh, how did they evolve? Yeah. What's evolved is that the revolutionary left has all but disappeared. And you, you sound like a crank if you say, my, my goal is to overthrow capitalism and to set up an anarchist uh, community, uh, decentralized, uh, you know, local communities with, uh, you know, some sort of federation. People go, that's nice. And they'd say, you know, there's an election next year and these goddamn Republicans might get back in. So, uh, you know, while you're planning your anarchist commune, uh, why don't you get out and vote? Right. But right. that's it. I mean, the revolutionary left, to some extent, capital has triumphed because they have defeated their absolutist opponents. Mm-hmm. Right. They've defeated their absolutist opponents. All they have left is people who, I would argue, think that they're opposed to the things that Republicans are doing. But in the actual policies that they do, even if they're way over here being much nicer, as you said, fundamentally, they're still anchored to that ideal. You know, for example, the mainstream of the Democratic Party thinks that if we got rid of racism and sexism and and transphobia and things like that, then everything would just be cool and we wouldn't have any of these problems. But they're specifically leaving out the class analysis. They don't want to have workers be an identity along with race categories and things like that. Because that would turn them into, if they had that kind of analysis, that would turn them into the opposition. Sure. Uh, And it seems to me like they're not interested in being part of the opposition. They want to be part of the club. Yeah. Can I, can I do my radio thing? Sure. I did this. Don't, don't, don't be mad. Okay. (laughs) But since we're only audio, I'm just going to reintroduce myself. Okay. Okay. I'm Peter Werby, and Leano has been kind enough to invite me on to his radio show. I'm the author of a fairly new novel called Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel. It's available at peterwerby.org. I'm also a longtime staff member of the Fifth Estate magazine now, was a newspaper. It's in its 56th year of publication, and it identifies as an anarchist publication. But now, like I say, that used to send people shrieking and but no longer it's been defanged which says well now for instance we can print the fifth estate we can say anything we want and the powers that rule they aren't threatened in the slightest in fact they would just show that you know what's the word you know that this is a society where all points of view are allowable right Yeah. So what lessons do you think we can learn? What lessons do you think the left should learn from the way that things have evolved over the past 60 years or so? Well, you know, if you come on the radio or a podcast, you're supposed to be a smart guy. And the last thing in the world the host wants to hear is the interviewee say, I don't know. And I think that would be my most honest response. I could probably dig up some things that sounded logical, but we are really at this inflection point of 
no one knows where we're going or, or what's going to happen. I mean, the idea that there is this mass-based fascist movement, and if anybody wants to argue that it's not fascist in all of its definitions, I'm ready for the argument, um, sure. that's based on the category or the class of people that previously made up the progressive forces and even the revolutionary forces in different countries, it defies the imagination. You know, we can say all day to these guys, hey, you're voting against your best interests, you know, and you, you're voting for these uh, pro-corporate racist, blah, 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 blah. And you know what? And to some extent, these are more like the Rome faction, the, the SA, the brown shirts, than the more mainstream Nazis who really were the defense mechanism for the big corporations and banks in Germany. Because, you know, at that time, as you know, in the uh, 1930s, there was a challenge from communism and socialism to the rule of capital. Well, there's not one at all. But what right. you had then, you had the same sort of psychopathology present, let's just take Germany, in smaller cities and in the rural areas uh, where the Hitler had his Nazis had their greatest support. So you had a necessity class defense of capitalism, and since there's not enough capitalists, so they had as their troops this mass psychopathology. Well, now all you have is this psychopathology. It's not like capitalism needs defending, and they're not trying to stop us from nationalizing corporations or from creating a revolution and setting up workers' councils. You know, they, they want to, quote, own the libs, close quote. They want to come armed because last year uh, when they came to the Michigan, the militia came to the Michigan Capitol because they couldn't go to bowling alleys or get tattoos. Right. Um, but we can laugh at them all we want and, and, and think how crazy uh, they really are. But talk about people that could answer fully your question. They have a vision. They have energy. They are armed. And right now, you know, we're just sort of hoping things go our way. I mean, I think you and other people are doing a lot more than hoping. Well, yeah, we're certainly trying. But uh, I see what you're saying. I mean, I mean, uh, that's certainly a, an accurate description of what's going on. But I mean, like you were saying before, the police have gotten better, not nearly enough. But going from, you know, not having much happening with killing a whole bunch of people and particularly black people and now having a bunch of stuff happen when we can see them killing one person. Like you said, I think that's a significant change. But do you think that kind of change is, is carried out through that right wing movement? Or do you think that there's a large movement? I mean, I'm sure there's a fringe part of it, but I think there's a large movement out there that's really interested in turning back the clock to 1950. Well, well, when they say, when I had my phone in talk show on WRIF, and they were talking about make America great again, I'd say, give me a date. When was it great? Yeah, sure. you know, I mean, what maybe they meant 1950 when there was segregation. I don't think they thought about it. I mean, I don't think right. that there uh, right. was a particular date. But we've been successful. We, the left, have been successful in making progress with, within policing. But the job of the cops is to police the poor. I mean, as you yeah. know. Yeah, there's a lot of other stuff. And as long as you have such class differences in, in wealth and uh, political power, you have and overlay that in the terms of people of color with racism, it drives a lot of people of color crazy. 
you know, life in Babylon, as some black nationalists say, has not been a good thing for these folks right. that were brought here. So when you look at all these recent incidents, one of the things that the victims of police brutality or police killings has been they're overwhelmingly poor, not all, but most of them, or working class, at least. And so you add to it, uh, and it's also, I mean, there's two classes that commit crime, crimes against property and against people. One is the poor. I mean, in any country in the world where you have poor, the people that are you know, breaking into places, robbing people, uh, assaulting people are overwhelmingly from the poverty class. And of course, the big criminals are in the ruling class who create the context for the lower orders. And we know people do not always act well when poverty is enforced upon them. Now, I lived in Highland Park if people are listening to other parts of the country, a very poor, predominantly black suburb that's surrounded by Detroit. And we got broken into so many times. I would think that of our neighbors, 96% of them, I mean, I knew lots of them, were good, decent people that wanted the same thing that we did to live with security and not worry about their house getting broken into. But you have 4% of young men involved in crime, you know, drugs and B&Es and assaults and all that, it's, you know, it's a crime wave. So, you know, I mean, we see what's happening in the poor areas of Chicago, some in, still in uh, Detroit. And so the cops, you had to, you know, there's a heavy strain of authoritarianism and racism among uh, the white cops. Their interaction produces what we see all the time, except now they, you know, they're mad because they can't do what they used to do. They can't kill 100 people in five years and have nobody say anything about it. They can't do, as I relate in my book, Summer on Fire, have a squad of cops that go out and beat the crap out of young black men every single night, of which, you know, this police unit called the Big Four routinely did. So, um, yeah. But what hasn't changed, though, is the poverty. I mean, the mm -hmm. poverty is still there. I mean, you turn on television, you see black faces, you see African-Americans at all levels of political power, including the president of the United States. But still, people of color are disproportionately poor, and the disproportionately poor people disproportionately commit crimes, like the ruling class does. <laughs> right. So the way that I talk about this is I say... Um, Police are not law enforcement. If police were law enforcement, we wouldn't have to organize massive demonstrations to get them to test rape kits. Right. Testing rape kits is a law enforcement function. Buying military hardware is a wealth and privilege enforcement function. And that's what the police are set up to do. And that's why, you know, I don't know. What do you think about the controversy over the defund the police? By the way, are you probably aware of this? They took a poll of Detroiters and Detroiters mm -hmm. overwhelmingly wanted more police. Uh, because they see no bulwark between them and people that prey on them, uh, yeah. you know, the, the criminals in their neighborhood. Well, it's a loser, as we all know, as a political slogan, without yeah. a doubt. And it also won't totally change anything. I mean, the, sure, I've seen this video on YouTube where it, it's in Britain and there is this man, I think it turned out he was an African immigrant with a huge sword. And he's swinging it at everybody. The cops come and he's surrounded and he's going after them. And do they shoot him down? You know, the cops, they get confronted with somebody with a butcher knife and they shoot him nine times with their Glock. Right. You know, they just danced around him. And suddenly these other cops show up with a net and throw the mm -hmm. net over him and got him. Yep. They didn't hurt him. He didn't hurt anyone. But I mean, the idea 
think about this, Lionel. You or I, could you imagine being out on the streets with, particularly as, as people have more and more armaments, as you guys are angry? It's a situation that nobody should be put in. And why I say that is, if the cops were really wanted um, peace in the communities, they'd all join the Democratic Socialists of America and be out at every $15 an hour demonstration. In fact, they'd say 15. Why not 20? Because changing the class nature of this society, Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're getting at, would decrease uh, people acting out the need or the desire for criminal acts of predation. And yet they're just fine. And now they're pissed. The cops are pissed that they just can't beat the crap out of people or shoot people. Back in between 67 and 72, what was the prosecutor's name? Maybe William Callahan. He just routinely, oh, you shot a black man? That's okay. No charges. You know, I was on Woodward Avenue probably around that time coming out of a restaurant. And all of a sudden I see this cop shoot this guy who's running in the back with an M1. It didn't kill him, but uh, well, I don't know if he died. And, you know, I have no idea what the guy did, but if he would have done that now, there would have been, you know, 5,000 of us down in front of police headquarters as well. We should be. So that's interesting. That that's changed as well. I mean, they're, they're under more pressure not to be so violent, et cetera. And we're actually, in a way, enforcing that. I'm wondering, um, we were talking a little bit before about, you know, how uh, they don't care about what you publish now. They might have more back then. Like, But um, what do you think about the propaganda level? I mean, is, is there a significant difference between how propaganda, what propaganda was about back then, what it's about now, and how pervasive it is? Well, let me just say, back then, the cops broke into our office to steal our subscribers list. They went to uh, stores that sold the Fifth Estate newspaper and told them not to do it. The FBI had big files on the Fifth Estate and on each one of us, so it was uh, you know, pretty repressive. I suspect, at some level, there is you know, some surveillance of people like myself and maybe you as well. But, you know, they, whenever that comes out, they get such, you know, they get a lot of criticism. So maybe they aren't anymore. I mean, with modern technology, it's pretty easy to figure out who's who pretty quickly. The nature of propaganda, I said earlier that the so-called underground press of which the fifth estate was a member. And at that time in 1970 was publishing weekly and had a circulation up around 20,000. We had a crew of street sellers that would be, you know, out on the street as soon as the issue came out. In fact, uh, because we were full-time workers, we got $25 a week and all the newspapers we could sell ourselves. So we would go out, keep that quarter (laughs) that the paper uh, sold for. But, and there was a unified message not entirely, but uh, politically, there was pretty much of a unified message in the 500 uh, underground newspapers that were all regularly appearing that had the estimated circulation of about 4 million. And there was something called the Liberation News Service that sent out packets three times a week. So us, and maybe say on a, with a given story, 350 other little newspapers would publish the exact same thing. Well, that's quite an impact on people who want information and that who even more so are movement activists who you know are kept up to date. I mean, that sounds crazy getting a, a mail packet um, and then typesetting it and then having it printed in a newspaper and then have people have to go out um, on the street saying extra, extra, read all about it. But uh, today, 
everything is so diffuse because of the nature of the internet. I'm not sure what has impact and what doesn't. I mean, being older, I don't involve myself with too much of it. But when I read about people that are so-called uh, Facebook uh, or internet influencers, mm -hmm. and I see that they could have like a million people. And, and I'm thinking, what are they influencing them about? And where are people getting their information? And what's the trust level? It doesn't seem to me, and again, you know, could be a function of age. It doesn't seem to me to be a, a good development. I mean, I might be saying that because it has diluted our influence as a political publication you know, from, you know, I don't know if you put numerical uh, uh, number on it, but, you know, from a from 100 to 1, um, mm -hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, I mean, when I mean, when I think this is important to do what you're doing here with this podcast, or I wouldn't bother to be on it. Sure. But but Thank someone you. could say, and excuse me, you know, I mean, don't take this the wrong way. No. You could say it's just another lost fart in a windstorm. I mean, we got our people. You have your people. I'm going to tell my my people to listen to this if they want to hear what I have to say. But again, the the diffusion of it all has really eroded the capacity uh, to propagate uh, the ideas that you and I think are important. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I'm working with right now on the progressive movement across the state is trying to build more community. One of the things that I see all the time is I see that we've got a few people that take on many, many, many different roles. They wear lots of different hats, like official hats. For example, working in the Democratic Party, I see uh, lots of people who will be the vice chair of this and the secretary of that, and all, they're all the same person. And I'm like, we have to start bringing more people in. We have to build our networks deeper and broader. And what I see is I see a lot of people like in their zone, and they don't cross over as much as I think is really necessary in order to, you know, as a movement, we need to be in a position where we can stand up a whole bunch of people as quickly as possible when something happens or something like that. And um, I think one of, the, one of the biggest issues with the diffusion is that you get some people that are working really hard and doing a lot of stuff, some people that are sort of on the margins and nobody's really having a regular conversation together about what to do and how to deal with this and you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I think that's a real problem that the left has to address. Do you see any of that or are you? Uh... Well, sure. Well, I mean, what's happened is the technology is determinative in, uh, in terms of how we communicate. I mean, people, when I tell people I still subscribe to the print edition of the New York Times, they say, yeah. what? Yeah. I mean, one thing, isn't it expensive? And I say, yeah. I mean, I could read the New York Times online, but I, I actually like to get up and sit in a chair away from a computer and, uh, and read this. And there's a whole different manner in which information goes into your brain. It also, what, what has happened is, uh, hey, we're, uh, I have, you know, 4,000 friends on Facebook. When's the last time you got together? I mean, I know there's right. a pandemic and all, but when's the last time you got right. together? I mean, I got raised up this socialist party, which, um, uh, I don't know, the Trotsky Socialist Party, I don't want to give any, even give it any um, uh, publicity. They had a, they had something every Friday night at their party headquarters in Detroit. And uh, Marilyn and I, my wife, we would uh, go down there to hear, you know, people that had 
been to Africa or been to a march on Washington or uh, wanted to comment on, you know, missiles, U.S. placing missiles uh, somewhere. And the idea, I mean, try that now. I mean, when the pandemic is over, when it will come get over, right? Try, try, try putting that together. I mean, you'll wind up with six people. Um, uh, although I don't know if that's maybe I'm. That's not entirely. The case I'm thinking about the Huntington Woods Peace Group. I think they get pretty fair turnout. But one of the things you'll notice if you start calculating the average age, I'll bet it's way up in the 60s, because face to face meeting, reading print and all that, that's, uh, you know, uh, age uh, uh, determined. And so uh, which struck me odd. I mean, I never I mean, getting together with people is one of the joys of of my life. And I'm, I'm sure everybody listening says, well, this is mine too. But the idea that we would be getting together for uh, a meeting to discuss the, the, you know, what just happened in Afghanistan, which Huntington Woods Group has done, um, should, I mean, should fill a hall. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely should. Part of the reason that it's not is actually because people are getting the information other ways. Right. You know, it used to be that was the only way that you could get that kind of information. That's a good point. So I think that, so for example, what happened in 2016 with Bernie Sanders' campaign, where basically, from my perspective, it looks like what happened is Bernie Sanders stood up and said, I'm a democratic socialist, I'm running for president, I don't care that you call me a socialist, I'm going to own that. And a bunch of people all over the country stood up with him and said, yeah, we're with you, looked around and said, hey, there's a whole bunch of us. And I think that that's a significant factor in what's going on in the country right now and also in terms of the propaganda. So, I mean, for example, one of the things I was thinking about with the propaganda is that it has maybe not surprised me, but it has been notable that nobody that argues against any of our positions has any idea what any of our positions are. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. know. Was it always that way? or Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I used to uh, tell people when I did my phone in radio show on WRIF, I used to uh, say, uh, well, tell me what my opinion is. Tell me what my argument is. And they would always repeat back just some, you know, well, you want everybody to be slaves of the government. I said, that's what you think I've been arguing about? I said, I can repeat your argument word for word, and I can present it better than you can. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, one of the things that's, uh, that's happened, uh, the right has gone into major projection, you know, the, so they now uh, claim that uh, liberalism, liberalism, forgetting about anything to the left of that, is this uh, mental disorder, you know, that we're, I, I mean, you go, yeah. wait a minute, these crazy people are telling us we're crazy. So, uh, you know, I, I know, did I, yeah, I wrote an article or an, uh, a column for this paper called the Ferndale Friends back when Barack Obama said that we got to get out of our bubble. And I said, for one thing, it's important to have a bubble as your base. I mean, they, they, they talk a little about the Democratic Party base or the base of the left, but mostly it, it, it's a sort of 
a pejorative. In other words, you're you're you know you're involved in mass thinking, and to say well they are and we aren't. I mean that's true. I mean when people um, you know th these righties go crazy when you uh, make fun of Trump or criticize him, and uh, when somebody criticizes Biden, uh, we th we think seriously about it. I mean, think about us. Can you imagine dressing up in clothing that has Biden written all over it? No. I mean, these, there's a screw loose here with, uh, with these uh, people. Um, uh, and so uh, mostly I've found that, and increasingly so, there's no talking to them. I mean, here's, here's the frightening thing, Leano. These people, great numbers of them would kill us. Yeah, absolutely. We would, uh, unprovoked. We would not do that to any of them, you know, and so and this is the true mentality of a fascist, um, you know, the desire to punish, the desire to use violence as the spear point of your your argument. And so, I mean, we really need communities and uh, the, and the communities we need the most are face to face ones. And so I don't know, you know, if I had it to do over. Well, let me start it another way. Um, in 19, let's say, in 1996, I did not sit around thinking, gee, I wish I had a computer with which to write my article. I, don't, I wish I had a computer so I could do the layout and design of the Fifth Estate magazine. I did not wish I had some system where I could be in constant contact with people. That I, So I have to turn my phone off so you don't hear the dings from the texts that I keep getting from uh, everyone. Uh, there, that was, there, wasn't a, a, there was not a palpable need for all that. And, and for instance, in the Fifth Estate, when we did what's, uh, I think most people know the term layout. I mean, take physically take the, the, the printed columns and the headlines and the mm -hmm. photographs and put them down on a piece of paper. We had an office and we'd have always six, seven people in there. We'd get food together. Now, um, we're, you know, I sit in front of a computer by myself and do the design and probably, well, I don't know, you know, John Locke, uh, what was the 18th century philosopher said, there's no such thing as a labor saving device, which on the face of it sounds nuts. Mm -hmm. Um, but more time is spent now using the computer and dealing with it, glitches, buying new equipment, uh, dealing with ITs and, and all of that. So uh, it has not saved one bit of time for me. And like I said, I never sat around thinking, boy, I wish I could do this. And yeah, and what now, <clears throat> if I want to um, call, let me see, where are they? If I want to call a friend in Italy right now, I just get on my cell phone and call them. Um, back then and earlier, um, suddenly, you know, uh, an airmail letter on that real thin paper, um, mm -hmm. you know, self-contained letter and envelope would come. Hi, sorry to be so long in answering, but really enjoying my stay in Italy. We're like that. So they say, oh, here, they can send you 20 photos and what they ate. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I like that and I do that, but got along fine without it. Let me go back to what you said about the difference between how they relate to Trump and how we relate to Biden. Yeah. Um, for example, I'm curious what you think about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, obviously you're for getting out of wars, but I was, I thought it was, I mean, for example, I've been telling Democrats, what is this with any opposition to that? We need to get behind him and say, you know, get out of the rest of them too. Yeah. 
And, uh, and it's interesting that the establishment pushes unity, unity, unity up until somebody's willing to go against the plutocracy. And I think that he was kind of forced into it more than people realize. But uh, the withdrawal? Forced yeah. into withdrawal? What do you mean? He was a treaty. Trump made the, yeah. the, the treaty. Had to, we were supposed to, get, supposed to get out in May, weren't they? Well, right. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, you got you to gotta go way back. In 1979, Afghanistan was a socialist country, a Soviet protectorate. And Brzezinski got the great idea we could hit a hammer blow in the Cold War by backing these rebels, uh, these religious fanatics. And, and, and Jimmy Carter, nice, kind, sweet Jimmy Carter, went along with it and set the context for the whole thing. I mean, Reagan then you know, ran with it. And uh, since then, it's just been slaughter and destruction. And it's all just based in U.S. foreign policy. Could um, Biden have gotten out without some of the chaos? I don't know. And I don't, I don't even bother to look at it because that's not what, it, what it's all about. It's why does the United States have uh, the blood of so many Afghans uh, on its hands? And, you know, they say, well, look what's happened now. Well, it wouldn't have happened. And probably 9-11 wouldn't have happened. You know, Bin Laden was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Had the, the United States not had this uh, brainstorm. These are supposed to be the brightest and the best, these yeah. guys, you know. the uh, And everywhere they go, you know, across the world, the Middle East, Vietnam, Korea, all that, there's nothing but, you know, chaos, destruction, death, and the upturning of a society. I mean, George Carlin has this whole thing about the U.S. bombing brown people. You ever hear that? Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We're good at it. We yeah. got a lot of practice. Yeah. So yeah. it's, a, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, every problem isn't solvable. Right. I mean, and sometimes even the state we've brought ourselves into here in my darkest moments, uh, I mean, I never act like that. I act like... Uh, we still have the capacity for world revolution and the age of Aquarius simultaneously. Whereas if you said, do you really believe that? And I said, well, depends on my moment. And it doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. I think we have a, an ethical responsibility and particularly people like you and me who li- live at the level of such incredible privilege. And I don't say that and I don't act out of guilt. I act out of a responsibility to function in the way we do because of because of what we've been granted. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I actually see quite a bit of hope. Um, actually, I, don't, I don't like the word hope, but I, I see quite a bit of possibility in what's happening. And uh, I know what you're talking about. Sometimes you project that, and sometimes you have these moments where you're like, eh, you know. But I, I always kind of go back to basic biology. Every single major transition in evolution has been a transition from less cooperation to more cooperation. Sure. From prokaryotes to eukaryotes, from single cells to multi-cells, from non-social to social creatures, etc. So I think that there is something to the idea that the arc of history bends towards justice because cooperation is always a better solution than competition. Absolutely. Um, well, let me just ask you, what, what do you see as the future of the left, near term and, and longer term? Well, I'll have, to go, I'll have to go back again to what I uh, said before. I don't know. I'm heartened sometimes when I uh, read what people are doing. Uh, you and your group are seem to be doing some very important work. I mean, maybe 
one last chance with the Democratic Party. I mean, when I when I hear what you've described, I, I find that very impressive. I mean, there's little collectives, there's people standing uh, against uh, the further despoilment of the environment. You know, women are uh, on the move again with these uh, assault on the, their rights. Uh, black people are empowered and other people of color. So the context for a, a resurgent left is there. What I think all of us fear is next year will be that same process where suddenly we'll wind up with a Republican Congress. And then what? I mean, what, actually, what that could do, that could spur even more left activity. But yeah. there used to be a saying that uh, we ascribed to some leftist parties saying they're, they're saying, hooray, the workers are starving. The revolution will be here soon. Well, we don't, you know, but. Uh, I, I'm not sure. It's wait and see. And one of the things I've done all my life is I've been in media and I have not been that. I mean, I, I probably have gone to a thousand demonstrations, but in terms of being a core person like you are or being at the, the real center of people that are uh, organizing for change. I haven't. I've always been reported on that, interviewed people. Uh, and, and one of the things, you know, people have said, uh, that you're preaching to the choir, which is supposed to mean you're not reaching out. You're, right. Obama said, get out of your, your bubble. Well, it's very important to preach to the choir, and any preacher yeah. knows that. You want to keep uh, affirming the beliefs, the possibilities, the vision. And so my work has always been in, in media. And yeah, I mean, when things happen, I'll be there. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you'll come back on again. We can talk some more about all kinds of left stuff. Sure. But in the meantime, Peter Werby, peterwerby.com. The new book is Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel. Highly recommended. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for listening. You can find State of the Revolution on your favorite podcast platform or on the Michigan Progressive website, michiganprogressive.com. If you're listening on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. And if you like the work we're doing, consider making a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash Michigan Progressive. 